Pushkin. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. Welcome to this week's episode, where we will discuss Saudi Arabia, one of the most complicated and most interesting places in the entire world. Also, one of the most opaque. Saudi Arabia's history is little understood outside of the kingdom, but it's hugely important for understanding what's going on there right now. Saudi Arabia looms very, very large in U.S. consciousness. It started in the 1970s when oil was everybody's focus, it rose during the first Gulf War, and then it peaked in the years immediately after September 11th. Since then, Saudi Arabia has never been entirely out of the news, but it has become an especially intense focus of scrutiny and interest during the Trump administration. And that's because of the close relationship between the new dominant crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS as he's called for short, and the Trump administration. You'll remember that Donald Trump made a well-publicized visit to Saudi Arabia in the spring of 2017. That was the one with the eerie, creepy crystal ball. And he showed his great closeness to the government then. This week, Trump authorized a small troop deployment to the country after airstrikes hit a major oil processing plant there. Saudi Arabia says that Iran was behind the attack, a charge that Iran denies. Meanwhile, domestically, an internal revolution of sorts a quiet revolution, if you will, has been happening inside of Saudi Arabia. This is a transformation both in social mores, with women suddenly able to drive, and simultaneously in political power, with a traditional Saudi royal elite family gradually giving way to a single overarching figure, MBS himself. To discuss the complex personality of Mohammed bin Salman, the history of US-Saudi relations, and the revolutionary developments going on right now in Saudi Arabia, I am thrilled to have with me here in the studio, Bernard Haeckel, professor of Near Eastern Studies at Princeton University. He says that to truly understand Saudi Arabia, you actually have to start by considering the country's climate. 
It is absolutely a very, one of the driest places in the world. And in fact, one of the harshest ecologies in the world. And I think one way to understand Saudi culture is that historically, it's, it was an adaptation to that ecology. Fascinating. To tell, tell me about, about that adaptation and how it connects to how Saudi Arabia was governed for really the last couple of hundred years, around, since around the time of the American Revolution. Right. So um, because it was a very harsh ecology, you had the principal form of, of social organization was tribal. And tribes um, are organized around, you know, an eponym, a grandfather, and, and often are in conflict with one another over material resources. So an know. eponym means we are the tribe of so-and-so. That's right. We're, we, we're descendants of, of, you know, Muhammad bin someone. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and typically a tribe is also named after an ancestor. Mm-hmm. Um, so these tribes were often feuding mm-hmm. uh, over resources. And the Wahhabis arose in a world in which you had a lot of violence of that kind. And it was a religious revivalist movement that basically tried to bring order and stability and create a state uh, to control and tamp down the nomadic the violent impulse of the nomads. So around 250 years ago in this environment of nomadism with no central state, this religious revival movement, Wahhabism, comes into existence. Right. Named for even Abdul Wahhab himself, it's his name. That's right. It's so named it after the re- Yeah, that's right. It's named after a religious reformer who was a kind of, um, you, you can think of him as a Calvin, if you like, mm-hmm. uh, or Luther of his day, mm-hmm. who basically said, you know, that true Islam is not practiced. People have uh, deviated from the belief in the one true God. Mm-hmm. And in the name of God's oneness, the doctrine of God's oneness, I'm going to impose the true faith on everyone. And I'll use the sword if necessary to do so. So how did this religious reform movement marry itself into a political state? So the religious reformer himself um, made a pact with a local leader of a town and essentially said, you know, if you mobilize your resources in the name of this religious ideology, I will give you legitimacy. And then they started preaching and, and fighting and soon began to acquire other territory and bringing other territory under their, um, under their power until around 1805 when they captured Mecca and Medina um, and much of modern day Arabia came under their their influence. And the name of the man with whom Ibn Abdul Wahhab made this deal was? Muhammad Ibn Saud. And so there is the birth name. of the name Saudi Arabia. That's right. It's a guy. It Ibn is a Saud guy. is a guy. I, I often right. say to people, there are not many countries in the world that are named the Arabia of somebody in particular. Saudi Arabia means the Arabia that belongs to the family of Saud. That's right. And in fact, the country owes its existence to their religio-military efforts to, to unite this entire territory. So the birth of Saudi Arabia happens, again, right around the time of the American Revolution, and it grows out of this close alliance between the religious reformer and Wahhabism and the Saudi family and the government that grows out of that. So the modern Saudi states, in their various iterations for the last 200 years, are all reflections of that unique marriage. And in fact, um, you know, that's why what's happening today is somewhat remarkable, because we see that alliance between a religious movement and a political family, mm-hmm. a dynasty, coming somewhat apart, so or at is- least being reconfigured. How has the relationship between the religious dynasty, because it's been a couple hundred years, and the political dynasty 
traditionally operated until this most recent generation. Right. So this Saudi history and the Saudi states have had three different iterations. Mm -hmm. So you had the first Saudi state, which was founded on this pact in 1744 and lasted until 1818 when it was crushed by the the Ottomans. Then there was a, a second Saudi state, which was less powerful, less influential in the 19th century, didn't go very, didn't go very far. And then we are now in the third Saudi state. And this third Saudi state was initiated by one of the descendants of the founder, Muhammad ibn Saud. He's known as King Abdulaziz, uh, otherwise known as Ibn Saud as well. Uh, and he began the uh, unification with the, through the use of this religious ideology and violence of the modern Saudi state, which was ultimately declared a kingdom in 1932, and he became a king. But he allied with this uh, family, this religious uh, family of the reformer. Traditional alliance, and he went back to it. That's right. He went back to it. He mobilized um, a a religious ideology and and forces to bring uh, other territories under his control. This started around 1902. By 1932, we have the creation of modern Saudi Arabia. And amazingly, he did not do this on the suspicion that there was oil wealth waiting to be found. Yeah, not at all. (laughs) And then, as though by direct divine providence, shortly after the state was consolidated, boom, they find oil. That's right. Lo and behold, (laughs) you know, the largest uh, oil fields in the world are in Saudi Arabia. One of them, for instance, called Ghawar, is the size of Delaware. Um, and <laughs> the oil been, field is the size of that's color. right, and it yeah. has been pumping, you know, close to five million barrels for the last fifty some years. With, I mean, no end in immediate sight. Eventually, no. it will end. Yes, and that's and, part of what we'll talk about. Yes, but you know, this is you know, the Saudi Arabia has about twenty three percent of the world's proven oil reserves, and it's it is the cheapest number, and it's the cheapest oil to produce in the world as well. I mean, you know, it just literally almost comes out of the ground with minimal effort, (laughs) right? With minimal effort. So this extraordinary thing happens in which what was otherwise a kind of minor kingdom in an area that most countries had never bothered with suddenly became one of the most valuable pieces of real estate in the world because it's sitting on these oil resources. Yes. I would have imagined that when that happened, the ruler would have tacked away from his alliance with the religious authorities and just gone in on his own. But that didn't happen. Yeah. Why? Why didn't it happen? Well, I mean, to understand King Abdulaziz Ibn Saud, you have to understand that the man, I think, had several qualities, the most important of which is that he knew the limits of his own power. And he knew that his population was deeply conservative, in fact, religiously quite reactionary, and that he needed religion in order to control his population. There's an apocryphal saying, I I think it's apocryphal, but Mm -hmm. it's perfectly in keeping with his temperament and his character, uh, which says that religion, he is meant to have said, religion is like a falcon. The one who controls it hunts with it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he understood the power of religion very, very well. So King Abdulaziz creates this dynasty and then he does a kind of remarkable thing. He had an enormous number of sons, right? Yes. Not, not quite a hundred, but in that. No, he had ballpark. about 34, 35 sons. 34, and, 35 sons. And then an equal number of, of daughters. And he set things up so that the inheritance of his royal throne would not just go from father to son, father to son, father to son, as many sort of Game of Thrones-ish regimes yes. do it, but rather in a kind of somewhat unusual model yes. where it went to his one of his older sons, right. 
And then it was supposed to go down through the brothers. That's right. Why? It, why do, I've always been curious about this. It's such an unusual way of doing things, and it's been so crucial to the history of Saudi Arabia. How do they come up with this mechanism of I mean, designating you, designating heirs? I mean, I I think I, I think that uh, first of all, it's not a it's not a super formalized system. Okay, yeah. so, so it can more be about how it works. It can be changed, or how and it, it is being changed now. Yeah, um, we're coming to the revolution. That's any, right. Any moment now. Right. So. The first thing to understand also is that that cr- the creation of Saudi Arabia was not just the work of King Abdulaziz. It was mm-hmm. also the creation of some of his sons who were very close in age to him. I mean, mm-hmm. many of them had fought these battles themselves. With him, because they were with born him. when he was pretty young. That's right. Yeah. And so so the idea that somehow you could sideline these people who were the founding fathers of the kingdom mm-hmm. uh, was un- was deemed untenable. So it was determined that the most competent, the most eligible of the sons would become uh, the king by consensus and acclamation of the other brothers. And the government was divvied up between the brothers. So you had different ministries under the control of different brothers, Mm -hmm. each one of which became sort of almost like a semi-autonomous statelet, if you like, within the state. Mm -hmm. So one guy controlled the Ministry of the Interior, another person was the governor of a large province, a third was in charge of the foreign ministry, and so on. Though they like to use a non-brother for the Ministry of Oil, right? That's right. For too important. That's right. For the for the kind of crown jewels of the of the system, and there are really two. One is the oil company, mm-hmm. Saudi Aramco. That's always been run by a technocrat and mm-hmm. princes were kept away mm-hmm. in order not to mess it up. And the other is the central bank, or what is called the Saudi Arabian Monetary Agency. That's mm-hmm. always been run also by a technocrat. Mm-hmm. So, so they divvied up power between themselves. You know, it became a gerontocracy. It became a country that was increasingly ruled by very old people. Because the brothers got older and That's older. right. The brothers got older <laughs> and older and they stayed on, you know, in positions of power, some of them for 40, 50 years as ministers in, mm-hmm. dif- in different agencies of the government. And as a result, you had the consequences of that politically, that people, as they got older, didn't want to change things. It's a place that's extremely conservative to begin with. Mm-hmm. So to understand MBS also, you have to understand that, that he comes out of a system that was essentially run by extremely old people who were unwilling to change how yeah, uh, the country, done. yeah, how the country was run. So as the brothers get, as the, even of the youngest of the brothers gets older and older, any observer inside and outside can tell that at some point they're going to have to switch away from the brothers. That's right. Now set the stage for the current day and the rise of the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. Where does he stand, first of all, generationally compared to uh, Abdulaziz bin Saud? You know, I mean, he is the grandson mm-hmm. of the founder king, mm-hmm. but the grandfather died in 1953, mm-hmm. and he's still in his early 30s mm-hmm. today. And he was born around 1980, I believe. But his father, who yes. is still, let us not forget, the yeah, king the of king. Saudi Arabia, King Salman, is the son. Yes, he's the son of the founder. So we're still, technically speaking, yes, we're still on the sons That's of right. the original founder. We're not quite done yet. That's right. And what happened is, as things do happen, people die. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the sons have died. And many of the principal architects of the system have passed away. King Salman is one of the last great sons and fa- of the founder mm-hmm. and one of the great pillars of the, uh, of the system. He was, for instance, the governor of the, of the largest province, the province of Riyadh, for you know, many decades. Mm-hmm. He was the enforcer of uh, the family's discipline. Um, he was the keeper of the history of the family and of the kingdom. He's, you know, he's a formidable 
uh, person, the present king, Salman, he decided that we're going to move away from this old system of brothers and consensus to one of primogenitor where, you know, his son, son will become. Although not, he chose not to, not to choose his eldest son. Why not? What was wrong with the eldest son? It's not clear. Mm-hmm. It's not clear why he chose uh, Muhammad bin Salman MBS. MBS is the son of the third wife, is the eldest of the, of, of the children of the third wife mm-hmm. of the king. And, uh, you know, there are rumors as to why. One is that he saw in him mm-hmm. something that uh, he didn't see in the other sons. You know, going back to a, a Saudi um, saying, again, to yeah, do with Falcon. Good to, go, good to have sayings. Yeah. And good again, with another Falcon. Again, to another Falcon, Falcon number two. Yes, another Falcon saying. In Saudi Arabia, they say that the father is the falconer of his sons. Mm-hmm. In other words, the father knows which of his sons is the best hunting Falcon. Mm-hmm. And so it seems that he has chosen, I mean, clearly he has chosen MBS as the best of the Falcons. I don't think I should tell my, my kids that I, I am your Falconer. I don't know, I don't know, how, I don't know how well that would, that would go over, but it makes sense. Yes. Okay, so the stage is now set. King Salman says, we're changing the order. Instead of it going to one of my brothers, and there are a handful of them left, I am going to designate my son, Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, as the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. He is going to get the throne. He's going to be the first king of Saudi Arabia who is not either of modern Saudi Arabia, who's not either King Abdulaziz himself or one of his sons. Correct. And that leads to something of a sense of dissatisfaction among the other brothers because he's breaking the chain of succession. He's breaking all the rules. And in response, MBS has to take decisive action involving the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. So tell us from this perspective what was going on. So I think, you know, to understand the Ritz, you have to understand also that this is an absolutist monarchy, an Mm -hmm. absolute monarchy. So the king has final say in all matters. And this king is king, while all the key brothers who would have in the past uh, stood in his way, tried, you know, whose views mattered are no longer around. Right, who were supposed to, but they were also, so the older brothers were dead are gone. The older, most most senior ones are gone. So he had more room for maneuver. He had much more room for maneuver. He's an absolute monarch. And everyone in Saudi Arabia ultimately looks to the king. Mm -hmm. So the king's will, just like in the case of Louis XIV, is final and will determine the nature of succession. Now, what MBS does is he also sees a system that is, incredibly corrupt, in which many princes, but also businessmen and bureaucrats and administrators are involved in uh, all kinds of schemes where, you know, uh, the government gets overcharged on contracts, all kinds of kickbacks take place. Mm -hmm. And MBS wants to show that there's a new sheriff in town and that that old system is no longer going to uh, function. And, you know, feeding at the trough you know, where the government is paying 10 to 20% extra just because of this corruption on all its contracts is going to stop. So he has this arrest of hundreds of people, many of them princes. Mm-hmm. So these are his cousins. Cousins, uncles. Uncles. Uh, and he, you know, he he has them, uh, you know, put in, as well as bureaucrats, as well as businessmen, you mm-hmm. know, all the entire kind of elite mm-hmm. that managed the system gets put into the Ritz-Carlton and here in the West, everyone saw this as a shakedown uh, for MBS to benefit personally mm-hmm. from the money. 
when I asked around about mm-hmm. like, well, is he trying to enrich himself? Yeah. And one Saudi said, but you know, he controls the river of of money. I mean, he he is in charge. You know, he is right. the he power. is the state. He basically. is the state. So he doesn't, he doesn't need, need to money. Himself, he can right. like take any money he wants from the right. state already. So it's not it's it not wasn't a, a shakedown. It was something it, else. It was something else. And what was it? So I think it was two things. One was to destroy that older system mm-hmm. of corruption. Mm-hmm. And perhaps create a new one mm-hmm. uh, with him at the center right, of it. A centralized. Yeah. Uh, you know, or a much smaller one. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly kind of an, a, a change in hierarchy and power. Mm-hmm. And it was about getting some of that money back mm-hmm. into the public treasury. Mm-hmm. And he, I think he managed to do some of that if the money was in country. The money that was overseas was almost impossible to bring back. And according to reports, they weren't gentle, even with very senior members of the royal family. Yeah, it's possible. You know, firstly, you have to remember that any senior member of the royal family has never confronted a situation where someone says to them, uh, you can't have this or you can't, you can't, you know. Much less you can't leave your That's right. Right. So I think, so I do think there was coercion that Mm -hmm. was used of different kinds. Yeah. I have no proof that torture was used, but it wouldn't surprise me. Right. Um, And it's clear that it was very effective. Yeah. So... As Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, consolidates power, he's also trying to change something about the authority of religion at the same time. Yes. So we hear about women driving, which is something that the traditional religious scholars have been blocking for many, many years. How is he doing that? And how real is that? You know, sometimes critics say, well, Mohammed bin Salman needs to be liked abroad. He needs support from the Trump administration in order to consolidate power. So he's throwing the West some bones. By saying, oh, we'll liberalize for women, we'll let them drive, but there's still a guardianship system in the country where women, in theory, can't travel or, you know, make important life decisions without the agreement of a male guardian. So it's all superficial. Talk talk about, A, what he's doing, and B, how real it is. So I think, again, to understand the changes that he's affecting, you have to understand the relationship that the Saudi state had with religion. And for that, to, to understand that, you have to go back to the... Cold War. Mm-hmm. So uh, during the Cold War, the Saudis were under immediate threat from other ideologies, namely communist ideologies, socialism, Arab nationalism from Egypt, from Syria, and so on. And coups were taking place where military officers were toppling dynastic monarchies in Libya, in Iraq, almost anywhere and everywhere in the Middle East. It was a bad period for kings in the Middle That's East. That's right. And so the Americans who were at war with in a cold war against the communists, basically come to the Saudis in the late 1950s under President Eisenhower and say to the Saudis, you know, why don't you mobilize Islam as a political ideology against the left? Hmm. And initially the Saudis... We're doing in God we trust. Why don't you guys try the same? That's right. And the Saudis initially didn't have the wherewithal and the resources to do this. They would have liked to, but it's only in the 60s when a lot of the Muslim brothers who are members of an Islamist organization are being persecuted and discriminated against in countries like Egypt, Syria, and Iraq end up seeking refuge in Arabia that the Saudis have the manpower, the human capital to start using Islam as a political ideology against their ideological opponents. Outside the country. Outside the country. They'd always used it internally, but they didn't have the manpower. Yeah. They didn't have the educated, skillful people That's to right. move through the Arab world That's right. spreading their yeah. message. And it became, you know, absolutely central to how Saudi Arabia defended itself. And in fact, it got ramped up at the end of the 1970s, with the Iranian revolution, mm-hmm. which was also an Islamic revolution and, and sought 
to undermine Saudi legitimacy. So the Saudis turned up the volume on Islam as a political ideology and as patrons of this ideology. Mm-hmm. So this is a kind of a Cold War story. Mm-hmm. It's also a story of confronting Iran. And of course, with the Cold War, the culmination of that alliance with the U.S. using Islam as an ideology was in Afghanistan. And that mm-hmm. ended up producing Al-Qaeda, yep. which is an unintended consequence. So MBS, against this background, MBS says, you know, this alliance with Islamists uh, using Islam as a, you know has brought us nothing but grief. Mm-hmm. It produced Al-Qaeda. Mm-hmm. The Americans are now blaming us for it when, in mm-hmm. fact, we were allies with the Americans. And so I don't want to have anything to do with it. I want to just give up Islamism completely. And moreover, it's creating a society here in Saudi Arabia where no foreigner wants to come and work mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. And I want to be like Dubai. I want to be dynamic. I want to create a knowledge economy. I want you know people to want to come here. And for that to happen, I need to socially liberalize. I need for women to be in the workplace. I need to perhaps allow for alcohol to be consumed. And I need a lot more kind of live and let live, mm-hmm. which you know is impossible under the old dispensation. Mm-hmm. And so I'm breaking with that past. So on that view, we don't even need to ask so much whether MBS is throwing a bone to the West. It's the opposite. It's that it's in MBS's actual interest to weaken religious authorities. So when he does something like allow women to drive, it's not necessarily that he cares so much about women inherently. It's that he's trying to produce a more, westernized is too strong a term, but a more liberalized society to help himself and to help his economy. Yeah, I mean, not politically liberal at all. But, right. you know, something... Sorry, yeah, not liberal in the sense of letting anybody yes. vote. That's not on yeah. the cards. No. I think something like... I mean, what what he wants is to replace Islam with nationalism and populism. He mm-hmm. wants something similar to, let's say, Russia or China, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of a political model, where Saudis care about being, you know, Saudis and don't care about Wahhabism and don't want to spend money on building mosques overseas and that sort of thing. So he he's interested in in changing the the very kind of nature of society and 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 the allegiances of people. So that's the attractive might be the wrong word, but that's the kind of defensible, reasonable, understandable reformist face, as it were, of, of MBS. And yet at the same time, he's come to be seen internationally as being very brutal in the process of doing this. And a, a crucial event in this was the the murder of someone uh, whom we both knew, uh, Jamal Khashoggi, a Saudi himself um, from a prominent Saudi family, super upsetting uh, to many people who knew, knew Jamal, like, yes. like, like you and me. Talk a little bit about why that happened and how we can try to make sense of it in light of the other objectives that Mohammed bin Salman is pursuing. So I, I think, um, you know, Jamal represented in a way, the old order. And Jamal himself, as you said, I knew him, I've invited him to Princeton and he's spoken there and I've known him since the late 1990s. And um, But Jamal was uh, seen as an Islamist mm-hmm. by the regime and he was seen as closer to Erdogan in, in Turkey. Turkey and to the Qataris and that he wanted, unlike MBS, for that alliance with the Muslim Brotherhood to be maintained that Saudi Arabia could not reform politically or socially without that alliance with the Islamists. It's a longer story for another conversation maybe we can have in the future. People, especially in the U.S., hear the word Islamist and think that that's somebody who is a jihadi or a radical, but that's yeah, no. often not the case. And it was certainly not the case for yeah. Jamal. 
he's more part of a trend of the last quarter century where many members of the Muslim Brotherhood came to embrace at least some of the goals of democracy. Yes. And wanted to democratize a place like Saudi Arabia. Yes. And liked the aspiration, it hasn't worked out so well in Turkey, but the aspiration at least of a democratic regime that was still Islamic in its orientation. Yes. Um, and, you know, lots of people thought that's what should happen in Egypt after the yeah. Arab Spring. It didn't work out so well yes. there either. Um, but so it's just important to clarify that what might have looked like a threat to Mohammed bin Salman might not have been a threat when viewed from the standpoint, say, of democracy. Yes, absolutely correct. And and Jamal, I mean, Jamal basically wanted Saudi Arabia to become more democratic. Yeah. And that clashed with MBS's vision of the strong man who's going to use nationalism and populism and move away from Islamism. Then why, to be blunt, why murder him instead of just letting him become what he already was, a vocal critic from the outside, essentially in exile? My sense is that that he was seen as a real threat because he could mobilize all the dissidents around the world against Saudi Arabia. He was very effective at using social media. He had a platform in the Washington Post. And I suspect that people around MBS went to him and said, basically, this guy is, you know, a real menace, a real threat to the order that you're trying to establish. And we should get rid of him. The murder, in addition to being um, morally reprehensible, was a gross miscalculation. Yes. It backfired hugely with the international community, especially journalists and academics, the kind of people whom Jamal knew all over the world, really turning on MBS in a way that at an emotional level, I experience as hard to get beyond myself. Yes. You know, I myself feel frustrated with him, um, angry at him because of, because he killed my friend. Yes. (laughs) You know, the people around him were so arrogant uh, because of their success domestically at taming all dissidents and opposition that they felt that they can do this also overseas. And I think that people definitely in the kingdom around MBS and he himself feels that it was a mistake vis-a-vis the West. I'm not sure, though, if you're looking at Saudi dissidents around the world, and if you can show that you can get one of them in Turkey under the rule of Erdogan, who is the personal friend of that dissident, Mm -hmm. if you can get to that guy, Mm -hmm. you can get to almost anyone. So So as a message to the rest of the dissidents is, we can get you no matter where you are. You can't run. Yeah, it's a kind of Putin-like message, Mm -hmm. right, Mm -hmm. to dissidents. So... You know, they might not regret it in that regard. Maybe not the blowback. Yes, maybe not. Say a little bit about MBS himself. uh, And you know him. Yes. I as I work in Saudi Arabia, I knew a number of people who were around him Mm -hmm. around MBS. And and one of them once contacted me and said, you know, the prince has seen a piece that you've written and would like to meet with you. This was a time when he was uh, trying to cultivate Americans Mm -hmm. and American elites. And so I, I, I met with him and uh you know, we chatted in Arabic. And my impression of him is that he, you know, he's very charismatic. Mm-hmm. Um, he has facts and figures, you know, at his fingertips about all kinds of things. So there's kind of like a, you know, a genius-like quality in that he can mm. give you like num- rattle off numbers and data about almost anything to do with the kingdom. Mm. And then he also pays real close attention to what you're saying. And so he gives you the feeling that, you know, he really cares 
So he's a politician's politician. And a skilled one, it sounds And a very like. skilled one. Comes across as very impressive. Yeah, and he's, you know, you he's- can so see how he impressed the Trump administration. That's right. And he charmed also, you know, Michael Bloomberg and mm-hmm. all kinds of people, you know, around, around the country. Tom Friedman, you know, David Ignatius, mm-hmm. all kinds of people mm-hmm. were charmed people, by him. Many of whom are skeptical people in general. That's right. And, you know, I think he had the advantage of the fact that he was so different from these older rulers of Saudi Arabia who just seemed like- um, you know, clones of these old Soviets. You know, you remember in the old days with Andropov and Brezhnev mm-hmm. and all these guys, mm-hmm. you know, the Politburo who just seemed like dead men, dead men walking, another. you yeah, know, exactly. dead men walking. Yeah. And he is just a breath of fresh air in the sense that he talks and wants to change and wants to liberalize and so on. So there's there's a kind of attractive quality to him because mm-hmm. of that. But at the same time, there's a toughness to him. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually probably why he was chosen by his dad. How do you, as someone who's an observer of the region, a scholar of the region, how do you internally balance and find your own ethical compass in dealing with somebody who is in many ways dynamic, extraordinary, a genuine reformer, and also capable of, you know, dropping a dime and killing somebody? So, you know, he he's an object of research for me. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, I go to the Middle East and I go to Saudi Arabia and I talk to people who hate him. Mm-hmm. inside the royal family, mm-hmm. dissidents, you know, ex-jihadists, journalists, liberals, women. And he's just one of the mm-hmm. many people that I mm-hmm. engage with to learn as much as I can about the country. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I, I think of my engagement with him in as much as it will continue mm-hmm. as just part of research, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, now, if he asks me, you know, what do I think about X or Y, just tell him what I think, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I haven't sort of held back on telling him that, you know, killing Jamal is a terrible thing and mm-hmm. it's a, a crime and, and someone should pay for it. Mm-hmm. I haven't stopped f- from telling him that, you know, if he tries to build an alliance with the Chinese or the Russians and move away from the West, that that would be a terrible strategic error for the for his country. I tell him that, you know, the dissidents should be released, all dissidents, not just the women, because, you know, writing in social media criticism is not criminal Mm -hmm. and will never be understood as criminal in the West. And I mean, I've had this experience myself, so I'm I'm not asking you something that I wouldn't, I haven't asked myself a thousand times as well. But what do you say when people tell you, look, that's all well and good to think of someone as an object of research. But if you're in conversation, you know, if you're having late, late night text exchange with the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, you know, you're helping him in some way. You're engaged with power. And if you're giving him good advice, that's good advice that he'll use to achieve his ends, whatever they are. And so that it, that line drawing, which is very hard for any, any engaged scholar to do, is, is too hard to, to defend against and better to better to keep a distance. What do you, what do you say when people, people say that to you? I mean, um, I think that as long as I feel that I haven't done something wrong or helped him do something wrong, mm-hmm. which I, I haven't done, yeah, I, I don't feel compromised. Yeah. I mean, if he asks me to do something, that's a different, that's a different matter. I mean, right? I should say for myself, I have felt compromised, you know, leave aside Mohammed bin Salman, you know, I worked with the U.S. government in Iraq, working on the constitutional process there. And, you know, I, I had then and still have lots of criticisms of the way the United States government operated. But I was, you know, I was fully part of a U.S. occupation regime and the the ethical errors and the, the crimes that that, you know, government backed, you know, that, that, that the United States committed there. I have to bear some ethical obligation and responsibility for yeah. that. But that's a little different because that's my own country. 
And you're you're talking right, to and you also you accept. I mean, you also agreed to you know in a formal to capacity a to yeah, take a job, right? right? So I'm not taking totally a job. Different. Yeah, I'm not taking a job. I mean, the, the, for yeah. me, it's a way of understanding the system so much more in the country, so much better. Yeah, yeah. Just to close, where's it all going? You know, revolutions look impressive when they're going well. So this revolution seems to be succeeding. What are the risks and what are your predictions about whether it will ultimately succeed? Right. So for me, the idea of success here is whether Saudi Arabia will be able to transition to an economy that is prosperous and that delivers for its people beyond the age of oil. Mm -hmm. That is a very difficult thing to do Mm -hmm. because essentially what you have in Saudi Arabia is a nanny state that uses the oil revenues and then redistributes it to the population. And that's an unsustainable model. And it also creates certain pathologies in terms of uh, people expecting jobs from the government, not wanting to work in the private sector and so on. So I think the economic challenge is the most serious one. Mm -hmm. And I'm, you know, doubtful as to whether that's possible in Saudi Arabia or anywhere else, given the volume of money that gets generated and gets redistributed. Mm I should add one last thing, which is that if he doesn't deliver, if MBS doesn't deliver on his promises of economic reform Mm -hmm. and eventually of political reform, there will be social mobilization. People will mobilize in the streets Mm -hmm. like they have in Egypt and in other Mm -hmm. places Mm -hmm. and will make demands for more greater accountability, greater participation in, in the government. Well, when that starts to happen, we'll have you back and we'll talk about it. Bernie, thank you so much for a fascinating, fascinating conversation. I look forward to talking more with you about these things, and I hope you'll, you'll come back and talk to us on Deep Background again. Thank you. What does it mean for the future of U.S.-Saudi relations that the United States has deployed troops to Saudi Arabia for the first time in years? Does that decision increase the chances of a broader war in the Middle East? Well, one thing is for certain— U.S.-Saudi relations, close for more than half a century, are getting closer by the day. Donald Trump sees Saudi Arabia as the linchpin in a broader regional alliance against Iran. Israel agrees with that position, and Donald Trump has worked hard to try to bring the Saudis and the Israelis closer together, again on the axis of being against Iran. Saudi oil remains crucial to the economy of Europe, and therefore by extension to the broader oil markets, even as the amount of oil the U.S. produces has gone up. And as long as the world remains dependent on oil, Saudi Arabia is going to remain a crucial strategic player. That means the U.S.-Saudi relationship is likely to stay close, even if someone else replaces Donald Trump as president of the United States. Over time, if Saudi Arabia actually reforms under Mohammed bin Salman, that is likely to bring the Saudis and the Americans closer still together. Of course, closeness between countries like the U.S. and Saudi Arabia is not necessarily the same thing as the United States going to war on behalf of the Saudis. Right now, we know the Saudis don't want war with Iran, the Israelis don't want war with Iran, and Donald Trump doesn't want war with Iran. So for the moment, expect the relationship between the Saudis, the Israelis, and the Americans to get deeper but watch closely to see if Saudi Arabia is able to make the internal reforms that will strengthen its ties to the United States. Yeah. 
you can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the customer experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. Now for our very remarkable sound of the week. The actions of the Trump presidency revealed 
discernible fact of the president's betrayal of his oath of office, betrayal of our national security, and betrayal of the integrity of our elections. Therefore, today, I'm announcing the House of Representatives moving forward with an official impeachment inquiry. That, of course, was House Speaker Nancy Pelosi on Tuesday announcing that an impeachment inquiry against President Donald Trump is going to go forward. There's no way to avoid the sense that we are at a historic moment in the history of the United States. It's not that we haven't had impeachment inquiries before. Andrew Johnson was impeached, but ultimately not convicted by the Senate. The same was true for Bill Clinton. Richard Nixon never got to the point of being impeached because he quit. But that is a tiny number of instances where the House of Representatives has come to the point where it is preparing to issue articles of impeachment against a sitting president. What's most remarkable about this instance and what differentiates it from the previous three examples is that this time it's all about interactions between the president of the United States and foreign powers. That's how it started with the Mueller investigation, but it seemed when that investigation came to an end that Donald Trump had somehow dodged the bullet that he had managed to emphasize the part of the Mueller report that said there was not sufficient evidence of collusion in the 2016 campaign between him and the Russians, and to de-emphasize the parts of the report that emphasized obstruction of justice. What's changed is the revelation that a phone conversation occurred between Trump and Volodymyr Zelenko, the president of Ukraine, in which Trump actively requested, as a favor, Trump's word, for the president of Ukraine to commence an investigation of Joe Biden, who, not by coincidence, is Donald Trump's leading opponent going into the 2020 campaign. What would it mean in historical terms for the House of Representatives to impeach a president for effectively asking the assistance of a foreign power to subvert our democratic elections? The answer is that if proven... Such allegations amount to a serious attempt to undercut the independence and sovereignty of the United States as a republic of its own. To be very clear, we are not talking here merely about an attempt within the United States to distort electoral outcomes. We're not talking about breaking into the Democratic National Committee's headquarters the way Richard Nixon had the Watergate burglars do. No, we are talking about calling on an outside power to take some role in attempting to affect the outcome of the U.S. election. Remarkably and astonishingly, the current allegation is that Donald Trump, in fact, attempted to do using Ukraine what there was not evidence that he did with Russia, namely to collude with them in a process designed to affect the outcome of a U.S. election. And this time we're finding out about it before the elections even taken place. Now, there's a lot more to find out about the details, and there are sure to be denials by Donald Trump and by Republicans. There's no guarantee that Trump will be impeached, and there's no guarantee that if he is impeached, he will be removed by the Senate. Indeed, that seems like it would be a very tough road to travel. Nevertheless, the mere fact of the allegations, coupled with the opening of the impeachment inquiry, signals that we are at a remarkable, unusual, indeed astounding moment in U.S. history. If you ask me what would the founding fathers have said, I think they would have looked at us and said, we warned you this could happen. We gave you an impeachment process in order to deal with it. The future of the republic is in your hands, not ours.
If we mess it up, we won't be able to blame people who lived 250 years ago. It'll be on us. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott with engineering by Jason Gambrell and Jason Rostkowski. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Lobel. I'm Noah Feldman. You can follow me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. This is Deep Background. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.